All right, so section two, critique of the relation between man and the technical object as it is presented by the notion of progress arising from thermodynamics and energetics, recourse to information theory. Within man, what can be in a relation with the individualized technical being is the intuition of the schemas of functioning. As a being who participates in its regulation, man can be coupled to the machine as an equal, and not merely as a being who directs or utilizes it through the incorporation of ensembles, or as a being who serves it by supplying matter and elements. By this, we mean to say that neither an economic theory nor an energetic theory can account for such a coupling of man and machine. Economic or energetic links are too external for it to be possible to define this true coupling through them. There is an inter-individual coupling between man and machine when the same self-regulating functions are better and more subtly accomplished by the man-machine couple than by man or machine alone. Let's take the case of what we call memory. Leaving aside all the mythological assimilations of vital functions to artificial operations, we can say that man and machine present two complementary aspects of the use that is made of the past. The machine is capable of retaining monomorphic documents that are very complex, richly detailed, and precise for a very long time. A magnetic tape 300 meters long can keep a recording of the magnetic translation of any noise or sound in a bandwidth of 50 to 10,000 hertz, corresponding to about an hour's listening time, or two hours if one accepts a reduction of the frequency band to an upper limit of 5,000 hertz. A roll of film of the same size can record scenes that take about half an hour to play, with a de definition of about 500 lines, that is to say, in a way that makes it possible to distinguish about 250,000 pixels on every image. Magnetic tape can thus record 3,600,000 sonic events, each one distinct from the others. Cinem cinematographic film stock can record 120 million pixels, each one distinct from the others. The difference in these figures is not derived solely from the fact that the grain of a magnetic, magnetic strip is larger than that of the sensitive film. In fact, it is of the same size. It comes primarily from the fact that the recording of sound corresponds to a linear track on tape, whereas the recording of images corresponds to the splicing of successive surfaces in which almost every one of the sensitive pixels can become a carrier of information. Now, what characterizes the conservation function of this machine is that it is absolutely without structure. Film does not function, uh, sorry, film does not record clear-cut figures, geometrical images, for instance, any better than the disordered images of grains in a pile of sand. To a certain extent, the vivid oppositions of clear-cut surfaces are even less well-recorded than the disordered uniformity of the grains of sand because of the phenomena of light diffusion in the film base, which creates the so-called halo effect around very bright and clearly delineated areas. Similarly, magnetic tape does not record continuous and well-formed musical sounds any better than transitional tones or noises. There is no order in the preservation of recordings by the machine, which does not possess the faculty of selecting forms. Human perception distinguishes forms, perceptual units, when looking at or listening to recorded documents. But the recording itself does not really contain these forms. The inability of the data-preserving function of the machines is relative to the recording and reproduction of forms. This incapacity is general. It exists at every level. A considerable intricacy is needed in order for a calculating machine to be capable of writing results in clearly legible figures on a cathode ray tube screen. The numeroscope is made of very delicate and complex combinations using encodings in order to obtain lines that can somehow reproduce numbers. It is far easier to reproduce Lisa Zhu figures than to write the number five. The machine cannot retain forms, but merely a translation of forms by means of an encoding in a spatial or temporal distribution. This distribution may be very durable, like that of a magnetic tape, definitive, like that of silver grains in chemically sensitive film, or altogether provisional, like that of a series of pulses passing through a mercury column with a piezoelectric crystal at each end, used in certain types of calculating machines for the preservation of partial results during the course of the operation. It can also be very fleeting but sustained, 
as in the case of the recording of numbers on a mosaic in a certain type of cathode ray tube, somewhat like the iconoscope, and equipped with two electron guns, one for reading and inscription, the other for upkeep. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology RCA Selectron in storage tube. The plasticity of the support must not be confused with the true plasticity in the recording function. It is possible to erase the numbers inscribed on the beryllium mosaic of the selectron to the thousandth of a second and to replace them with others. But the speed with which successive recordings succeed each other on the same support is, by, is in no way means that the recording, uh, sorry, uh, the speed with which the successive recordings succeed each other on the same support in no way means that the recording itself is plastic. Each recording taken in itself is perfectly rigid. It is obviously possible to erase the magnetization of the oxide grains from the magnetic strip in order to make another recording, but the new recording is completely separate from the preceding one. If the first is poorly erased, it interferes with the next recording, blurring it rather than facilitating it. So that was a bit long, but um, the the idea that he's going to be developing in this section is um, the uh, the mode of coupling between a human and a machine um, when uh, when both are at the level of the individual. Um, so what sort of relationship? Um, how how is a a person and a machine linked together? And so he's he's starting with the example of memory and the way that um, machine memory or recording differs from human memory and recording and how the two um, are related to each other. Um, so he, he's pointing out here about the, the ways that uh, mechanical or electronic um, recording, um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't select forms, it just records um, sort of pure input. Uh, it doesn't have any uh, sort of structure to, uh, to what it records. Whereas human memory, as, as we'll continue to see as we go along, uh, human memory, um, remembers structures of of scenes or events or uh, or um, you know, visual representations or whatever it is. So they, there's a sort of um, uh, correspondence they, they each the human memory and and machine memory sort of um, uh, correspond um, to each other in uh, the each um, they they select different aspects of uh, of a scene or of something to be recorded. It's interesting to me how that's kind of blurring today when you think about how machine learning is now able, capable of kind of perceiving scenes and labeling it, labeling the things that it sees in it semantically. So it sounds like, you know, this distinction that he's drawing here, obviously, over the course of time is, is, is kind of beginning to blur, I think. Uh, no, I'm done. I'm done. I guess the other thing to say with that, I mean, I wonder whether, like, even the way that we think about image compression these days, right, where... It, like deriving something from a scene, whether it's, you know, like compression, like a JPEG or something like that functions, uh, you know, primarily on the basis in which Simon Don is describing this, where, you know, there's a certain amount of information in the scene and it's it, irrespective and there's no, there's no form to be had. And yet compression is this thing where we are kind of imposing a kind of perceptive selectivity on things and sort of saying, if you see a, if the computer sees a patch of color that's more or less uniform, then you can represent that with less information than you would if something was, you know, more striated or more complicated as an image. So again, that things are kind of blurring in today's computing environment. Yeah, I think that's that's um, a good point to make. Um, like the, 
uh, recording uh, media that he's describing here, uh, whether it's film or or um, um, uh, or uh, magnetic tape and different things like that, they're all sort of passive recording mechanisms. It's just a uh, um, something that is impacted by light or sound or or whatever it is, and then uh, is just transformed passively. Um, whereas the the types of um, processes that you're describing, like uh, compression or or um, um, the visual um, you know, systems that can that can label visual items and things like that, these are all more active. It involves actual processing of the uh, of the input and not just uh, a sort of passive storage. And yet somehow it's sort of premised on what he's describing, right? Like it's sort of that this, that that sort of division between, you know, I just, I, I just find it interesting that there's, um, you know, how 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 did the techniques come to intervene in such a way that 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 line could begin to have been blurred? It's just it's uh, it's interesting to kind of roll the tape forward on 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 his thinking here. Yeah, and uh, those the more advanced um, you know visual recognition systems that they do involve. Um, you know, machine learning, which has to be trained by uh, by inputs, right? Like you you show the you, you input a labeled set of like here, this is what cars look like. You know, these are pictures with cars in them, or something like that. Um, and then the then you give an unlabeled set, and you you get the the system to sort the the set into pictures with cars and pictures without cars. Um, so it it revolves around or relies on the the input that um, that uses the human capacity to to make that um, structuring uh, or sort of sorting operation on the the, percep uh, the perceived input. Um, so it, it's sort of, um, uh, I mean, in, in, in one sense, this uh, distinction is, is sort of broken down. Um, the distinction that he's making now is, is uh, more, more broken down, but um, in another sense, it's still relying on that same sorting capacity to, uh, um, like human sorting capacity is just being sort of uh, trained into these machine learning systems. Yeah, like there's a story of there's a story of technical ends and and uh, psychic individuation kind of co-defining each other, you know, in the in a way that's pro at the in the end at the end of the day is probably consistent with what he's saying here. I'm interested to keep going. Yeah, I think that maybe that's a good uh, good point to keep going uh, and look at what he says about human memory. Um, so if someone else would like to read the next uh, paragraph. I can go. Sure, go ahead. In human memory, on the contrary, it is the form that is preserved. Preservation itself is only a limited aspect of memory, which is the power of selecting forms of schematizing experience. The machine would be capable of performing a similar function only if the already recorded magnetic tape was superior to a new tape in recording certain sound figures, which is not the case. The plasticity in the memory of machines is that of the medium, whereas in human memory, it is the plasticity of the content itself. One can say that in man, the function of preserving recollections resides in memory, because memory conceived as a set uh, and of forms of schemas receives the recollection it records because memory connects the recollection with its forms. In a machine, on the contrary, recording occurs without prior memory. From this essential difference comes human memory's significant incapacity for fixing elements without order. It would take a very long time to learn the relative positions of 50 tokens of different colors and shapes emptied on a table in disorder. 
Even a blurred photographic view is more useful than a human witness when it comes to affirming the relative position of various objects in space. Machine memory triumphs in multiplicity and disorder. Human memory triumphs in the unity of forms and in order. Every time a function of integration or comparison appears, the most complex and best-built machine provides results that are considerably inferior to those that human memory can achieve. A calculating machine can be coded in order to translate, but its translation remains very elementary and crude. It presupposes a prior reduction of each of the two languages on a simplified basis, along with a reduced vocabulary and a fixed number of turns of phrase. For the machine lacks the plasticity of integration, which is the vital aspect of memory through which it distinguishes itself in that very instant from machine memory. The storage here, we have the English in original, uh, the storage of the calculator or the translating machine, which is nothing but a classical calculating machine coded in a certain way, is very different from the function of the present through which memory exists in man at the very level of perception, through perception, making sense of the present word according to the general turn of phrase and of earlier phrases, or even according to the totality of experience acquired in the past regarding the person who speaks. Human memory receives contents that have a formative power in the sense that they overlap with themselves, are grouped as if acquired experience served as a code for new accusations in order to interpret and fix them. In man and more generally in the living being, content becomes coding, whereas in the machine, coding and content remain separate as condition and conditioned. Content introduced into human memory will superimpose itself on prior content and take form on it. Uh, the living is that in which the a posteriori becomes a priori. Memory is the function by which a posteriori becomes uh, a posteriori matters become a priori. All right, so here's the, the other side of the comparison is uh, so human memory and uh, the two sort of um, the, the main characteristics that he points out that that um, that distinguish human memory from uh, um, machine memory are first that it's uh, it's um, sort of it processes the input it, it uh, selects structures and forms in the input rather than just um, possibly capturing what it receives um, and so this means that it's uh, so the weakness of this is that it, it's hard to remember unstructured information like a, a random assortment of objects uh, on a desk or something. Uh, but the strength is that it it um, is able to capture whatever patterns or or structure there is in the input, uh, much uh, uh, in a much more um, uh, sophisticated way than than just sort of passive machine recording. Uh, and then the second characteristic that he emphasizes here is that um, memory builds on uh, previous memory. So whereas um, a tape uh, is just uh, um, sort of each each recording on a tape is sort of independent of the previous ones, and actually um, the a, a brand new tape is is better as a recording mechanism than uh, one that has been used before because there's still traces of previous recordings on it, even if you try to erase it. Um, but uh, in the case of human memory, uh, your uh, uh, the the processing uh, and the, the the process of uh, grasping those forms and structures in uh, the input and and remembering them is built on previous memories. Um, so um, one example that I, that I was thinking of as, as we were reading that is um, um, uh, chess masters um, have 
you know, a much better memory of positions on a chessboard than um, sort of novice players. But um, it's actually been studied in like, in laboratory settings that if you if you position chess pieces in just random positions, like not not positions that can occur in a game, but just uh, distribute pieces randomly on the board, the chess masters have no better performance than a novice. Um, so the what they're remembering, what the chess masters are remembering when they remember positions on the board is not just the sort of raw position of the pieces on on a, a geometric surface. It's um, the structure of the positions as a as a um, an instance of a game situation. So their their memory is built on their um, their knowledge of chess and their memory of previous games and uh, you know the knowledge of strategies and so on. Uh, so um, rather than just being a passive uh, absorption of the geometric layout of the pieces on a board. That's great. There's that's like something. There's something of the crystal in that. Like we were talking, uh, like in some of the first stuff that we read, where it, that sounds like more ontogenetic memory that is that is relational and associational to the person's lived experience in their individuation or whatever, as opposed to yeah, a kind of more uh, like an engineering perspective on on what perception is or something like that in terms of absolute positionality. Yeah, so it's a it's a, a type of perception and memory um, that uh, that grasps relations between uh, elements in the in the picture. So the the structure um, is built up of those relations, and um, um, and so he's uh, his sort of theory of knowledge involves the idea that um, grasping these structures, grasping um, uh, relationships, means sort of creating those same relationships within your own knowledge. So um, you know, knowledge of transductive processes means a, a undergoing transduction in your own knowledge. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the knowledge itself is structured in the same way as that which it knows. Um, and so it's much more uh, active and, um, and structured and, rather than just a, a sort of passive and uh, structureless recording, like in the case of the, the magnetic tape. That's great. That's very well put. I see, Simon, uh, repurposing gestalt psychology a bit uh, in this and previous uh, two paragraphs. Yeah, I see that too, to a degree, although I'm mindful of the fact that, uh, and we were in the Heidegger reading last week in the, in the basic writings group, we were talking about gestalt theory as it relates to, uh, to Heidegger's uh, Dasein, and the caution there was not to be too ocular-centric about things, such that, you know, so that, like, a gestalt is a very, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very perceptual or ocular centric sort of metaphor. Whereas, um, you know, somebody like Heidegger and, and probably someone like Simondon would be, would be more invested in the kind of like the, a more, a deeper sort of more ontological account of what's going on. But that said, I, I totally see what you're saying. Yeah, I see your point. Uh, and uh, the fact that he also mentioned a tape recording, uh, oral forms also goes to show that it's not about uh, vision we are talking about here. Uh, form is more general than uh, seeing. Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly how I would put it. Yeah, for sure. Form is more, is, is more uh, is deeper than, than just seeing. 
Yeah, Simondon does uh, draw on Gestalt psychology a lot. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's good to point out the um, the sort of prevalence of visual uh, examples in a lot of discussion of Gestalt psychology. Um, but it is, it's also the case that uh, some of the early studies in Gestalt psychology, one of the sort of early um, examples that was introduced to to motivate the the idea of the the gestalt or or the form in perception was the idea of a melody. Um, so the fact that a melody uh, sort of preserves its unity, whether you you can raise it up an octave or down an octave, it's still recognizable as the same melody. Whereas if you take one note and uh, and raise it uh, a semitone or a tone, um, then it, it's uh, it changes the whole um, structure of the melody. That is not the same melody anymore. Um, so the the form the melody itself is a is a form that is um, recognizable through difference differences in the you know the the pitch of the uh, of the melody as a whole, um, but that can be uh, transformed by changing one note in the melody. Um, so that's a, an ex an instance of this gestalt or form at work um, in the auditory mode. I think, uh, and Husserl does the same thing, right? When when he talks about um, memory in his work, he talks about primary and secondary retention, and and he uses he uses the melody as a as a kind of as his working example more than once. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and Husserl also was drawing on Gestalt psychology. Um, there, like, it was um, sort of the the I guess cutting edge school of uh, early twentieth century psychology um, and the criticism of um, atomistic uh, theories of knowledge. Um, so the idea that knowledge would be built up by um, uh, sort of uh, individual atoms uh, or, or point ideas, like you'd have a, a sensation of red and, uh, you know, uh, in this point of your visual field and, and then another sensation of red in, the, in this other point of your visual field. And then those would be associated together and then you'd eventually build up the image of an apple or, or whatever it is. Um, and then Gestalt psychology um, uh, sort of introduced the idea or motivated the idea that there was much more structure in perception rather than being built up from these uh, sort of structureless atoms. Uh, and so things like shapes and, and uh, um, uh, you know, background and foreground and things like that were, were inherent structures in perception that um, the, these sort of uh, color points and things like that were fitted into rather than being built up out of the atoms. Um, so we can go on, I think, to the next paragraph, um, if someone would like to read. Sure, I can go. Uh, a complex technical operation, however, requires the use of both forms of memory. Uh, a complex technical operation, however, requires the use of both forms of memory. Non-living memory, the memory of the machine, is useful in cases where faithfulness in the preservation of details outweighs the syncretic nature of a recollection integrated into experience, having signification through its relation with other elements. Machine memory is the memory of the document, of the result of measurement. Man's memory is that which, after an interval of many years, evokes the situation because it involves the same significations, the same feelings, the same dangers as another, or simply because the similarity makes sense according to the implicit vital coding constituted by experience. In both cases, memory allows self-regulation, but human memory enables a self-regulation according to an ensemble of significations valid in the living and capable of developing only in the latter. That of the machine grounds a self-regulation 
that makes sense in the world of non-living beings. The significations according to which human memory functions stop were those according to which memory functions begin. The coupling of man to machine begins to exist from the very moment when a coding common to both of these memories can be discovered in order for a partial convertibility of one into the other to be realized so that a synergy can become possible. One case of this coupling is provided by the permanent data file of telephone calls. The summarized information recording up-to-date results recently obtained from multiple domains classed under different rubrics is recorded on magnetic tapes. A catalog and a telephone call system make it possible through the use of selectors to rapidly obtain a readout of what has been recorded on any of the magnetic tapes. Here, human memory is where the words and names of the rubrics have signification. The machine, on the contrary, is where a series of definite pulses provokes one magnetic tape player to be powered and not another. This fixed and rigid faculty for selection is very different from the one that prompts the inquirer to dial one particular telephone number rather than another. This pure case of coupling between machine and man helps to understand the mode of coupling that exists in other cases. There is coupling when a single and complete function is carried out by both beings. Such a possibility exists every time that a technical function has a defined self-regulation. Functions that contain a self-regulation are the ones where the accomplishment of a task is directed not only by a model to be copied according to an end, but by a partial result of the accomplishment of the task intervening as a condition. In the artisanal operation, this control through information gathering is frequent. Man being at once the mover, moteur, tool, and the perceiving subject regulates his action according to instantaneous partial results. The tool is at once tool and instrument, which is to say a means of action prolonging the organs and a channel of recurring information. The machine, on the contrary, as a complete closed individual replacing man, generally has no system of self-regulation. It goes through the motions of, of a stereotypy of successive gestures according to a predetermined conditioning. This first type of machine is what one would call a mechanical being without self-regulation. It is indeed a practical technical unit, but not a technical individual, strictly speaking. So in this paragraph, it's not entirely clear to me what this uh, system he's describing does, the, uh, the telephone catalog system. So it's recording some information regarding a telephone call and then it allows you to um, uh, retrieve that information um, off of a magnetic tape but I'm not sure exactly what it's doing. I don't know if anyone else understood that better than me. Is it maybe like the equivalent of 1-900 numbers? <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean those kind but like where you call and just receive information about the weather or whatever or a, a pre-recorded song or something like that right that like uh, that telephony was an information service as well as a as a person-to-person -person communications network at, at different points in history. Yeah, that's possible. I didn't think of that. So it's something like you know, press one for uh, for X, press two for Y, et cetera, and it'd be you know a set of uh, pre-recorded messages that you could uh, um, select from. It could be that. I'm not sure. Or maybe not even not even a phone tree per se, but more like just a one number devoted to one thing basically, right? Where if you want to call and hear a song or call and hear a speech or something, then you'd call a call in number. I know that historically telephonic systems had moments like that where they were more public information relay systems rather than point to point for, for people. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you brought that up also because there was a, a system, I'm not sure exactly when it developed, but it was sort of it peaked, I think, in uh, the 80s in France called Minitel, 
which um, used telephone lines for transmitting information. And it, it was sort of like a, a, a precursor of, uh, of internet um, systems where you could have, um, um, like there was like sort of online shopping or like over the phone shopping and uh, you know games and stuff like that over this Minitel system that used phone lines. Um, uh, but then it uh, sort of disappeared after the 80s. So uh, I'm not sure if it existed at this time when he's writing. I don't think so, but uh, I, I'm not 100% uh, uh, certain about the chronology there. Um, but in terms of the uh, the sort of conceptual level in this uh, power graph, so he's pointing out that these um, um, this I guess more simple form of uh, of coupling between the human and the machine it uh, relies on the human for um, the regulation of the of the pair. So the machine itself doesn't have uh, a self-regulating um, system. It it doesn't have uh, a feedback mechanism that can um, uh, sort of uh, perceive the results and then correct the uh, the action to to make sure it matches the desired result. Um, it relies on the human to use the the machine as as both something as a like an effector to to carry out actions and then also as an instrument to retrieve information from uh, uh, regarding the action. And um, uh, so the human regulation is um, uh, is what is uh, um, carrying out the, the self-regulation of the whole system. I think that this is probably the, the most succinct and specific so part of a kind of critique of, of artificial intelligence or um, even inherently sig signifying data, the both of which seem to be um, the common <laughs> these days, <laughs> both of which seem to be relatively um, common, at least in the kind of discourse related to technology in the last several decades, the kind of inherent significating properties of data, and then the inherent kind of cog cognitive function of of machinic processes, um, I think these are these are probably the two two points in which this this paragraph functions more succinctly than anything so far to kind of point out the that the kind of like rigid distinction I guess in which he he's making which would kind of preclude these types of things from being possible and subjecting them to the realm of abstraction rather than um, of individuation or in yeah of technical objects and individuated i guess yeah that gives you a, a really great sort of vocabulary to understand ai in the context like as historically continued continuous with recording technologies right so that you don't you don't have don't, you don't have to have this conversation about how it's how ai is a mind or something like that or that ai will replace human beings when you can frame it as being just another you know, another with layers of with extra layers of of complexification or something like that, that that it is a kind of it's a recording technology, a kind of collective recording technology. Yeah, right. And and this this kind of displaces the loci of the action to the the um, the, the subject, which has human memory rather than the 
art of, uh, the proposed uh, non-human subjectivity of the the machine come to life, which I always call the Frankenstein concept. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> yeah, no, this this would you could think about this in terms of like levels of abstraction, um, um, like each each like sense in which we have like a um, external cog cognitive mechanical object would just be kind of a functional level of abstraction in our own um, cognitive apparatus or our own th thinking, which um, has, as you know, it's like a very uh, different type of memory function than com computing technology does, which is mostly still the case, I believe. I don't think, uh, I mean, I guess somebody somebody could make the argument contrary to that, I guess, with all the, the research into like neural nets and, you know, computational theory of mind, because you, you could read a computational theory of mind, or at least a, a wide one to be contrary to Smondin's claim in, in this paragraph as well. But um, I think there is just kind of a minimal sense in which there's an overlap in which, in which it is still... Um, a fundamental categorical um, rootedness in the human, the human or the um, the life, the the freedom in which like the life form makes independent choices of the machinic processes. I suppose. Yeah, that's that. What you're saying is totally consistent with. Uh, it's also worth mentioning. I think is uh, Bernard Stiegler's work. Like just reading this, these last couple of sections, this is, this seems to me like it's it's precisely the the place where Bernard Stiegler's work takes off in terms of tertiary memory. Like that that are that that what it means to remember things in the first place will always will always be in, be invested or involved in some kind of technical substrate. Whether it's you know whether it's uh, whether it's chiseling. Uh, you know, glyphs onto rock, or whether it's or where, whether it's the latest AI, basically, right? That there's a kind of sense in which we are exteriorizing memory into our technology, and the logic of that technology will thereby dictate what, how precisely how we'll individuate. Yeah, I don't know uh, Stiegler's work very well. Uh, I hardly at all, actually. Um, but uh, I, I do know that he he did draw on Simon Don quite a bit, um, and he actually just died recently. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a, an interesting point to bring up. Notable bank robber philosopher. Yeah, probably the only um, uh, sort of famous philosopher who uh, has robbed them. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph and I will read. Despite appearances, it is on the contrary, the truly automatic machine that least replaces man because the function of regulation that exists in this machine presupposes a variability in its operation, an adaptability of its functioning to the completion of this work. A rather elementary enthusiasm for self-regulating automata lets us forget that these machines are precisely the ones that are most reliant on man. While the other machines need man simply as a servant or organizer, self-regulating machines need man as a technician, which is to say as an associate. Their relation to man is situated at the level of this regulation, not at the level of elements or ensembles. But it is through this regulation that automatic machines can be linked to the technical ensemble in which they function. Just as the human individual is not linked to the group by his elementary functions, whether active or perceptive, but by his self-regulation, which gives him personality, which gives him his personality and character. So the machine is integrated with the ensemble, not only in an abstract and preliminary way by its function, but also at every moment by the way it performs its own task according to the requirements of the ensemble. There is no such thing 
as a purely internal, entirely isolated self-regulation. The results of the action are not merely results in themselves, but also in relation to their external milieu, to the ensemble. Now, this aspect of self-regulation in which the whole of the milieu must be taken into account cannot be achieved by the machine alone, even if it is perfectly automated. The type of memory and the type of perception needed for this aspect of regulation call for the integration and transformation of the a posteriori into the a priori, which only, only the living thing can achieve within itself. There is something alive in a technical ensemble, and the integrative function of life can be ensured only by human beings. The human being has the capacity to understand the functioning of the machine. On the other hand, uh, sorry, on the one hand, and the capacity to live on the other. One can speak of technical life as being that which actualizes this relation between these two functions in man. Man is capable of, of taking upon himself the relation between the, the living being that he is and the machine he fabricates. The technical operation requires both technical and natural life. Do you think that's supposed to be man is capable of taking upon himself and it's just an error in uh, editing? Yeah, sorry, I, I noticed that. I, I just uh, corrected it in reading. I think I think it is supposed to say taking. Okay, that's what I was. I was assuming that. I think I ran across that once or twice too. In this, now this this definitely kind of confirmed my suspicion. But um, it's interesting because in in a in a in a broader sense that that this um dependence on on the human subject for the the technical ensembles lifelike function i guess or integrate it says there's something life alive in it so are we well this is another this is an aside possibly but i mean could we say that you know simondon's claims technical ensembles are alive now because he says this <laughs> can we can we say this or do we have to kind of um put that with an asterisk and say oh they're part of our integrative function of life that relies on a human being to make sense of that. I mean, it, can, is there a way in which we can just say like, yes, this technical, this technical ensemble is alive because of like the, the, the general like milieu or the whole, the totality of a milieu or something like that and be like, well, this, this milieu is total. So this, this technical object is alive. And then you can just kind of anticipate a human subject or something like that. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to like be as critical as I can to the the reading of this paragraph. I guess. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, as I would read it, I think he wouldn't say that the technical ensemble as a whole is alive, um, but that the, the the human being as a a living uh, a living being um, sort of uh, carries out the integrative function of the ensemble. So I, I think he would reserve the uh, the property of, of life to the the human being as the living uh, as a living being yeah that's that would be the coherent reading probably i just wanted to make it a potentially contradictory <laughs> but yeah no that's that's probably the the only charitable way to read read what he's saying here um but there there is inter i i uh, i joined a little late today but it's i noticed that he mentioned the a posteriori and the a priori uh, in a prior paragraph in relation to the memory and it looks like he's going on in that in that vein did you all discuss this distinction at all no not yet i mean if you think about it, cybernetic machines are kind of like that right like they they have to take they have to take a principle of a realizable telos or a realizable goal as already having been accomplished 
and then and then work backwards in order to project the steps to, to achieve that goal. That's kind of like a basic principle in cybernetics. So there's that. And then I guess, again, going back to the a more media theoretic uh, sort of situation, like you would find it somebody like Stiegler that, you know, that, you know, our current uh, information systems and their emphasis on, on, on formal semantics or something like that necessarily organizes us into a, a knowledge-based, fact-based sort of uh, sort of formal technical environment in which we operate, right? And that sort of is what's driving big data as a kind of uh, as a kind of new a posteriori, which we will all come to come to inhabit. I'm worried that this externalization of this integration function might reduce it to this the same type of mechanism, and therefore exclude it from that same integrative function. Like there's, if we if we use this integrative function of life to kind of bestow this lifelikeness on a technical ensemble and ostensibly guarantee it in some respects, it seems like what, what a, an immediate worry would be the kind of disintegration of this back into this, you know, uncontrolled form, you know, the, um, I, I, I'm kind of worried about the way that that this is kind of show well describing how we kind of bestow a power of lifelikeness in this integrative function but whether whether the whole of the milieu is taken into account i think is not entirely evident by people's interactions with i guess incomplete interactions with these technical objects and um or yeah or interactions that interactions that presume either one side or the other of the divide, the dichotomy that he's described elsewhere, but between whether, you know, that, that right now, as it stands, that our maybe our current circumstances or as you're describing at the risk, is that we will just continually define ourselves as either being a technical element, in which case we will be enacted upon by our technologies, or or to, or 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 we will see things from from the from the view of the ensemble in terms of the more managerial and planning positions that that a technocratic society Sort of organizes for us, and that we won't, we 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 aren't sort of achieving the 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 sort of range of the technical individual. Maybe is another way of saying what you're saying. I don't know. <clears throat> this is foreshadowing a little bit. You're what we're going to talk about in a couple of pages, which about the technocratic stuff. So I mean, yeah, this. I don't know. I yeah. I I love I love philosophy of technology because you can cover almost any other interesting topic. I would also say that the like the, the the sort of the sort of concern that you were just. Uh, Sort of uh, elaborating there is very was very much on Simado's uh, not Simado on Stiegler's mind like like you were you were sort of saying that it's a kind of disintegration he calls it disindividuation that that the the age that we're currently living in now is an age of disindividuation where our technical systems have overrun us and we don't because of the because of the sort of the way that we've organized our individuation in relation to systems uh, it's it's now causing our sort of global disindividuation is the way he puts it. Mm, okay. Yeah. No. That's that's fascinating because yeah, that's that is kind of what I w was worrying about because this, the, it is it, it's fundamentally has to be rooted in the way that this function function of um, life integrative function of life uh, ensures the kind of uh, milieu of the technical object that I think um, must be if there are problems that result from this kind of disintegration. Um, that must be in somehow 
the result of this because this is the, the entire operational context. So it's like I have to own, I can only look to the way that we bestow this integrative uh, whole wholeness to the milieu um, of the technical object as part of the problem that could that was causally related to the disintegrative issues where we see the kind of terrible mythos of like like data as data you know and you're and you're just wondering well what what is this and you're like well it's data it's like the pure the purely quantitative like overtaking of the qualitative i guess is what i would describe that kind of terror as related to or, or, or which is basically which is kind of like an uh an epistemic reconfiguration of capital basically would be another way of thinking about it of exchange relations as as capitalism uh sort of uh you know establishes them or maintains them right right the the exchange the exchange function would be yeah definitely the apex of that and that would be that would be yeah in that territory which i'm never good at describing so Yeah, I think um, it's interesting in this paragraph, uh, he's he's introducing a theme. I don't think he's mentioned it earlier or, or maybe in passing, but uh, it's a, an important theme for him. Um, the idea of uh, you know criticizing the idea that automation is um, sort of inherently a good thing or inherently um, equivalent to technical progress. I, the idea that, you know, uh, uh, improving uh, uh, you know, technical development means uh, increasing automation, um, and uh, I think, in, and of course, was um, uh, like a, a prevalent idea at the time he's writing this in the '50s um, and then into the '60s as well. You know, um, the idea of like a, a a fully automated factory where you would not need any workers and you just uh, you know input the the production um, uh, you know the specifications and then the, the factory would just produce it on its own. This was sort of like a um, a dream for for management at the time, um, but in a modern context, you can look at um, similar types of ideology around um, algorithms. I think it would be sort of the modern equivalent. Um, and so I'm just thinking of uh, as a, a big controversy going on now in the UK about um, the uh, exam seed versus entrance exams, um, where because uh, students weren't able to to actually do the exams uh, this year because of uh, COVID-19. Um, instead, they used some algorithm that like was supposed to predict what your results would be, but it uh, um, it's anyway has had some terrible results where people who, uh, like if you're a good student at a bad school, it predicts that you're going to do badly and, and things like that. Um, and so there's this general ideology of, of um, you know, replacing human decision-making with algorithms as if that's something uh, Sort of inherently, um, uh, you know, more more rational or more um, you know less subjective or something like that, um, and then it, it it sort of obscures the fact that human um, the the human integrative capacity the uh, the human being is still involved in setting up the system and uh, and designing it and and uh, you know making the connections between different elements and so on um, and uh, um, and yeah so highlighting the the coupling between the algorithm and, and the human uh, human operator uh, the way that Simon Don does for automatic machines I think would um, sort of bring bring to the foreground the the decision making involved in establishing algorithmic systems yeah no I definitely think that the um, the 
mystique of the algorithm is is exactly the type of thing that that is is what I'm worried about in this context. And I think that these types of remarks pinpoint most most succinctly um, because because the algorithm is precisely this this sub, subversion of of the integrative function of of life in some regards. I mean, if, if, if algorithms just just work kind of in the background and we just have results, they could just seem magical anyway, and it wouldn't really make a difference. But insofar as we consider them as algorithms and and grant them that kind of conceptual independence of as a mode of action, I think we kind of displace the, the responsibility of human action. And that's an extremely terrifying thought to me. So um, anyway. Yeah, so I think um, you know the the um, ideology of automation of the you know of the fifties and sixties that he's writing about, I think, um, has sort of survived in this transformed way in in the ideology of algorithms today. So I think that's something we can sort of keep in mind as we're reading this. Like, to what extent um, what he's saying about automation and and uh, the way it relates to um, human beings uh, applies to algorithms today. I think that's an interesting um, sort of point to comparison. I'm gonna go ahead and read. Y'all can hear me, right? Yep. Okay. <clears throat> Technical life, however, does not consist in overseeing machines, but in existing at the same level as a being that takes charge of the relation between them, capable of being coupled simultaneously or successively with several machines. Each machine can be compared to a monad isolated in itself. The capacities of the machines are only those that have been put in it by its constructor. It unfolds its properties just as substance develops its attributes. The machine results from its essence. Man, on the contrary, is not a monad, for in him the a posteriori becomes a priori, the event becomes a principle. Man as technician does not perform this function prior to the manufacture of machines, but during their operation. He fulfills the function of the present and maintains the correlation because his life consists of the rhythm of the machines that surround him and that he connects to one another. He fulfills the, fu the function of integration and prolongs self-regulation beyond each monad of automatism through the interconnection and intercommutation of monads. The technician is indeed, in a certain sense, the man of ensembles, but in a very different way from the one that characterizes the industrialist. The industrialist, in the same way as the worker, is pushed by finality. He targets a result. Herein lies their alienation. The technician is the man of the operation in the course of its accomplishment. He does not take charge of directing the ensemble, but rather guides its self-regulation during functioning. He absorbs within himself the sense of the work and the sense of the industrial direction. He is the man who knows the internal schemas of functioning and organizes them in relation to each other. On the contrary, machines are ignorant of general solutions and cannot resolve general problems. Whenever it is possible to replace a complex operation by a greater number of simple operations, this procedure is used in the machine. This is the case for calculating machines that use a binary system of numeration rather than a decimal system and reduce all operations to a series of additions. 
I don't, I, I have to maintain a certain skepticism about this paragraph because I think binary systems of numeration have shown to be computationally as sufficient as decimal systems in um, func uh, linear programming contexts, I guess. Um, I don't know what y'all's thoughts on this are, but this this is where the first time I've re really been broadly skeptical of a paragraph in um, particularly this relation of binary to decimal systems. Yeah, I don't think he's, um, that he's uh, arguing for any sort of superiority of the decimal system to the binary system. I think he's um, pointing to the use of binary arithmetic in, uh, in computer systems rather, rather than decimal um, as uh, sort of an instance of the way that um, um, mechanical procedures break down a problem into into simple operations. Um, so like in the previous paragraph, he talked about um, using a, a calculating machine or, or a, a simple computer to, to translate um, from one language to another. Um, but then he points out that in order to do this, you have to um, sort of specify, you have to reduce the language, the two languages to um, a sort of rigid uh, structure. So you can, you can translate um, sort of one one word to another, you know, and fit them into this rigid structure. But if you just have um, sort of free natural language input, it uh, it becomes much harder to translate uh, from one to the other. Um, so that's another instance of taking uh, taking a problem and breaking it down into a, a simple set of operations, or, or sorry, a set of simple operations. Um, and I think that's what he's pointing to here, rather than saying that uh, that decimal arithmetic is uh, in some way superior to binary arithmetic. Well, yeah, no, I think that there's a few a few things then that I would be skeptical of, and I was already kind of skeptical of of, of that claim originally as he was making it, and then grew more so as as he related it to the um, uh, differences in the decimal and binary system. But I think in I the more at the crux of my criticism though would be the notion that there could not be a purely mechanical optimization function because it seems to me to be to be shown to be the case this is seemed to be like an, a very kind of obvious fact of of computing like as as it's practiced now like we just kind of know that that we can in in a way that requires no no human intervention that is like a strictly mechanical way um fulfill these kind of technical problems so i in a sense like the specificity and generality question is where i'm in the most disagreement with and everything kind of follows from that i definitely don't think that the key to this is exemplified at all in the difference between the binary system and the decimal system for instance there, you could say, well, there has to be some kind of human that has created it originally, but that that claim kind of becomes stale in a sense. If there's, I, I don't, I don't know, I, I I no longer really like think that that distinction is as poignant. I suppose if we can't really talk about the way that these types of general techniques can be accomplished in a way that's still either mechanical or um, uh, tech technical in its milieu. I like. I want. I want to maintain that distinction, even 
with systems that can can be shown to be op, op, general generally optimization capable. For instance, the example with natural languages, I would like to for there to be shown be able to be shown to be a a model for which in a purely mechanical way we can account for without any kind of pre-existing kind of model for for language it, what what language people were speaking um if the, if they were trying to communicate an idea so to speak like well take some some utterances or even some kind of auditory signal and reduce that into what prediction a uh, predictive predictive results for what things could be communicated like i think that this this should be like theoretically possible although like difficult right but it's it's just because because i don't i don't think that i don't think that this has been like excluded at least like this model of just kind of predictive uh, natural language processing uh, where you could just take take any like glossolalia that you just kind of say random syllables and have a mo- a model that predicts what this could mean independent of any kind of basis in language but just based on signal processing right just information theoretically i don't know maybe maybe i'm being too tangential here but i'm just i just worry that the way that he describes this is at risk of kind of um not not um being able to describe very well the the distinction that optim- optimized functionality could still be either mechanical or uh technical so if i understand what you're saying you're saying that 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 the that any any issue of optimization does not it's not just something that just rebounds onto human beings that 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 with you know somehow divorced from technicity but you're sort of saying that that there's a kind of like you sort of in dealing with some problem uh, in dealing with sort of simplifying some operation you fall into other theories of optimization no no well i was i'm more thinking that there's just this like one sense of optimization in function functional log, functional logic optimization sort of and um that this this relates to the kind of generalization or the organization that uh, that i think that he's talking about as being implicitly imbued upon the technical object by and its milieu by the the human the human life and the the, the human and i i just think that this is this is at risk of kind of undervaluing the the human contribution to te- to the milieu of technical objects if we if we reduce this to purely this action of of management and we just kind of think of ourselves as like part of this mechanical model where 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 the this necessary piece to the syllogism of of the mechanical object like well these things were just all like disorganized and then we kind of came in here and like organized them all it's like um techno technological imperialism or something like that <laughs> i don't know uh, it's a really interesting perspective yeah i mean i i can't i confess i don't i don't fully um i don't really fully grasp it but i but i i appreciate the distinction that you're bringing into the conversation for sure well okay think about um okay, like in the sense of uh of of the way that we think of like like the computing technology that we're very familiar with we think of it as ha- as playing these organizational roles and seemingly general generalized roles where one thing can be used for so many different things that uh that it doesn't seem to kind of omit the orientation and say like well 
these things are only oriented the way they are because we're there doing the orientation of them. It seems like the role we play seems is bigger than just merely the orientation of these objects. And because we play an actual, um, like kind of ontological role in the individuation of the technical object, we, we should not reduce it to this purely like mechanical kind of bestowing. I don't know, maybe this is all resolved and I'm just having uh, misgivings on a temporary level. So I, I'm not sure what to say. I probably shouldn't go on too much about this. No, it's fine. I'll just take, I, I'll take your misgivings as cues for sure as we go along. Yeah, I think, you know, raising critical comments or, or you know, uh, pointed questions and, and so on is a, is a useful exercise. Um, you know, we don't have to uh, take everything that Simondo says as uh, as gospel or anything like that. We can uh, uh, criticize what he says and, and use that as a, um, a guide as we're, as we're continuing to read to see if maybe he does answer these questions or if there's um, a gap that he doesn't address, we can sort of keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely. And tell me if I'm being too long-winded too. No, that's fine. I mean, the, the point of the group is to discuss it. I mean, we could each read the text on our own, you know, without, uh, um, you know, re without the discussion. So the, the discussion is what the, the sort of value added of this group is. Um, so we can go on to the next paragraph if someone would like to read. Okay, well, if there's no volunteers, then I guess I'll read. In this sense, one can affirm that the birth of a technical philosophy at the level of ensembles is, a, is possible only through an in-depth study of regulations, which is to say of information. True technical ensembles are not the ones, the ones that use technical individuals, but those that form a fabric of technical individuals through a relation of interconnection. Any philosophy of technics that starts from the reality of ensembles using technical individuals without putting, putting them into a relation of information remains a philosophy of human power through technics, not a philosophy of technics. One could use the term autocratic philosophy of technics for a philosophy that takes the technical ensemble as a place where machines are used in order to obtain power, puissance. The machine is only a means. The end is the conquest of nature, the domestication of natural forces by means of a first act of enslavement. The machine is a slave whose purpose is to make other slaves. Such a dominating and enslaving inspiration can coincide with the quest for man's freedom, but it is difficult to free oneself by transferring slavery onto other beings, men, animals, or machines. To reign over a people of machines that enslave the entire world is still to reign, and every reign presupposes the acceptance of schemas of enslavement. So he's going to he's introducing here this contrast between this autocratic uh, philosophy of technics that uh, is is going to be is based on um, the idea of human reign over machines and, and then or human reign of nature over nature through machines, um, and he's going to. Uh, you know, introduce or contrast this with, um, uh, I guess, a more liberatory philosophy of technics. Um, so that involves a relationship with machines rather than a, a rule over machines. So we can go on to the next paragraph. Any volunteers? I can go. Technocratic philosophy itself is affected by an enslaving violence insofar as it is technocratic. A technicism that comes from a reflection on automatic technical ensembles is inspired by the unbridled will to conquer. It is immoderate and lacks internal control and self-mastery. It is a force that is unleashed and which can only perpetuate itself for the duration of the ascending phase of success or conquest. 
Saint Simonism triumphed under the Second Empire because there were train platforms to be built, railway track to be laid, bridges and mountains, uh, bridges and viaducts to be spread across the valleys, and tunnels to be pierced through mountains. This aggressive conquest has the characteristics of a rape of nature. Man enters into possession of the earth's bowels, traverses and labors, trespasses onto what had previously been unreachable. Thus, technocracy, in a certain sense, implies a violation of the sacred. To throw a bridge over an inland sea, to attach an island to the continent, to pierce an isthmus, is to modify the configuration of the earth to undermine its natural integrity. There is a pride of domination in this violence, and man entitles himself as creator, or at least foreman of creation. He plays the role of the demiurge. It is Faust's dream being played out by an entire society by all technicians. Indeed, the development of technics is not enough for technocratism to emerge. Technocratism represents a will to acquire power that comes, in light, comes to light in a group of men possessing knowledge, but not power. The knowledge of technics, but not the money to put them to work or the legislative power to free themselves of all constraint. In France, technocrats are essentially polytechnicians, which is to say men who, with respect to technics, find themselves in a situation of being intelligent users and organizers of technics rather than veritable technicians. These mathematicians think in sets, ensembles, not in individual operational units. What holds their attention is not so much the machine as enterprise. Yeah, so this is you know further development on this autocratic philosophy of technics. Um, and uh, so he's identifying it with um, the technocracy. Um, and uh, uh, so Saint-Simon, um, or Saint-Simonism was um, uh, sort of like a early um, uh, early socialism, but it was understood in a, a sort of a, a top-down manner. So it, it wasn't a, a workers movement, but socialism as um, uh, a sort of rationalized organization of society. Uh, so society would be run by um, like engineers or, or you know, uh, people with scientific knowledge of, of the workings of society. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and this the same idea has you know sort of reemerged at different times. I mean, there was a technocracy movement in uh, the United States in uh, the 1930s, I think, um, like associated with the New Deal, uh, the idea that you would have sort of a, a rationally planned society through um, uh, having like scientific technicians running things, um, and. Uh, yeah, so, and I guess maybe today you could look at um, sort of like Silicon Valley um, ideology, um, the idea that like, um, I don't know, Elon Musk or something should be in charge of everything. The, the ethical overtones, uh, I found them striking in this passage, uh, I think especially around the words uh, self-mastery, uh, as if uh, there's a certain level of requisite self-mastery that is needed uh, to entertain a proper relation to technical individuation. Um, uh, this also reminds me of uh, perhaps kindred spirit in philosophy, Alfred North Whitehead. He also, I think, in this uh, similarly vast uh, speculative construction, uh, sometimes uh, took these uh, swipes at professionals, professional ethics, if not directly engineers, or uh, I think Isabel Stenger's uh, had a good discussion 
of this aspect in Whitehead uh, in her book uh, on Whitehead, of course. Right, yeah, there's always a, a, a pretty strong ethical um, element in Simon Dong that's you know, sometimes in the background and sometimes more more foregrounded. Um, and so we, the a text that we read, um, I guess a couple of months ago now, on the technical mentality that uh, you know it specifically talked about um, developing a, a normative, uh, de developing norms from uh, technology, um, and and in your know, relation to different different modes of of technology. Um, and yeah, so he he's definitely, um, uh, I guess, proposing an ethics. Uh, of, of human relation to uh, technical reality that would not um, that rather than dominating nature through uh, techniques um, would involve a, a, a self mastery um, and a, a sort of self regulation um, in that uh, and then uh, a sort of um, uh, a relation of, of almost equality between humans and technical reality, uh, not of domination. Right, and uh, Lays Mason has posted in the chat here the, um, a link to a uh, contemporary proponent of technocracy. So it's technocracyinc.org. Um, we can check that out after. Um, but yeah, so this idea, you know, sort of resurfaces in new forms every you know, 20 years or so. Um, but uh, yeah, just the general idea that uh, the people who who um, have a, a, a knowledge of technology should be in charge of society, basically. Okay, we can go on to the next paragraph. Okay. Furthermore, <clears throat> let me drink some water one second. I'm sorry. Everyone should stay hydrated. Yes, stay hydrated, everyone. This is step work. Yes. Furthermore, and essentially, in an even more profound way, the conditioning arising from the state of techniques comes to be added onto that of psychosocial conditioning. The 19th century could produce only a technological technocratic philosophy because it discovered engines and not regulations. It is the age of thermodynamics. However, in a certain sense, an engine is indeed a technical individual since it cannot function without a certain number of regulations or at least the, the very least a certain, certain number of automatisms intake, exhaust, but these automatisms are auxiliary. Their function is to enable the renewal of the cycle. Sometimes the addition to stationary machines of veritable self-regulators, such as Watt's governor, a centrifugal regulator called a ball regulator, individualizes the heat engine in a very complete way. Regulators nevertheless remain accessories. When a thermal machine has to generate great momentum in accordance with an extremely intermittent working condition regime, it is good to have a man keeping watch nearby who can press the regulator lever, lever before the load increases because the regulator, by intervening with too much of a delay, risks intervening when the engine has already slowed down because of the sudden load increase. This is what happens when a steam engine is used to cut large tree trunks into planks. Once the regulator kicks in without human intervention, the circular saw has already stalled or the belt has already fallen. The operator hits the regulator level, lever a half second before the saw wheel cuts into the trunk. The engine thus functions at full speed and is accelerating when the workload suddenly increases. On the other hand, 
The watt regulator is extremely efficient and precise when load variations become slower and gradual. Such incapacity for rapid variations can be explained by the fact that in the thermodynamic engines, even when there is self-regulation, it has no information channels that are separate from the effectors. There is effectively a feedback information channel in the watt governor, a channel of counter-reaction feedback, but this information is transmitted through a channel that is not distinct from the one used by the motive power that allows the engine to move a resistant organ. The regulator is connected to the output shaft, the whole ensemble made up of the flywheels, the main shaft, the volumetric cylinder device, and then the system for transforming alternating movement into circular movement must therefore already have slowed down through the loss of its kinetic energy so that the regulator can intervene by increasing the admission time of the engine and consequently also its power. Now, there is a serious drawback in this lack of distinction between the motive power channel, the energy channel, and the feedback channel, the information channel, which greatly reduces the effectiveness of regulation and the extent of the individualization of the technical being. When the engine slows down, which is necessary in order for the regulator to come into action, the decrease in running speed causes a decrease in power, the engine power in low or medium working conditions regime, where the throttling of steam in the sliding valve does not come into play, is proportional to the sum of all the elementary work performed by successive piston strokes in a unit of time. The decrease, is ang the decrease in angular speed results in the deterioration, can't say words, of the very conditions of reactivity that the regulator is designed to provoke. I, I probably might as well sum up with a small additional paragraph. It is this lack of distinction between the energy channel and the information channel that marks the thermodynamic age and constitutes the limit of the individualization of thermal engines. Suppose on the contrary that a gauge measures the torque on the transmission shaft at the outlet of a heat engine at every moment, and that the result of this measurement is sent back to a steam intake or fuel intake or carburized air intake if it is an internal combustion engine, so as to increase, increase steam intake in relation to the increased resistance exerted on the transmission shaft. The pathway by which the resistance measurement then is fed back into the steam supply and modifies it is thus distinct from the energy channel. Steam cylinder, piston rod, crankshaft, axle, transmission shaft. There's no need for the engine to slow down for its power to increase. The information sampling rate along the information channel can be extremely high with respect to the time constants of the energy channel. For instance, one every few hundredths or a few thousandths of a second while well, the cycle of a stationary steam engine lasts about a quarter of a second. Right, so here in, in these two paragraphs, he's, um, he's relating this technocratic ideology to a specific um, era of technics, so the thermodynamic era. And um, specifically, it's the, the relation, it's, it's the fact that thermal machines um, don't have a distinct energy and information channel. So to the extent that there is feedback and self-regulation in these machines, it's, uh, it has to operate through the energy channel. And, uh, and that's a, a limit to the individuation of the machines. Um, so as a, he gives a, sort of a detailed um, um, breakdown, I guess, of the functioning of the watt governor, but it's a little bit hard to follow if you don't already know how it works, I think. Um, so uh, um, Lathe Mason posted the uh, image of the watt governor in the chat there. Um, 
And the basic idea is that you have these two, um, um, like you have a, a weight uh, or a, a ball that is um, attached to this um, flywheel. And the flywheel is attached to the, the uh, intake of the steam engine. And so the faster the engine is running, the, the higher the, um, the weights will rise. Um, and that will open up the intake and allow more uh, um, more steam through into the uh, into the um, the mechanism. Sorry, I don't know the precise uh, vocabulary. Um, but basically, the 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 fun the operation of the engine itself regulates the the um, power of the engine. So if the um, if the engine um, slows down, then it, it uh, opens up and uh, feeds more power to make it speed up again, and then if the engine speeds up, it closes down and uh, and feeds less power into the engine. So um, uh, the the limitation of this um, has to do with the fact that it, um, there's no separate information channel, and so it can only operate at the at the speed of the cycle of the engine. So a quarter of a second, uh, as he points out here, um, it's a fairly slow reaction time. So it's only once the engine starts to slow down already that you can um, start feeding more power into it. Whereas if you have a separate information channel, um, you can um, anticipate the slowdown. So you can uh, um, have the resistance measured uh, before the engine starts to slow down and increase power um, before the slowdown happens. Uh, and that's basically the function that the human is performing in the example of the, the saw that he points to. So the human rather than waiting for the saw to engage the trunk and slow and the engine to slow down, the human will um, increase the power, uh, you know, half a second before the saw hits the trunk so that the, the saw is already operating at full speed uh, when it hits the, the trunk yeah, rather than waiting for it to slow down. And it may have been brought up previously, but um, the thermodynamic age, um, is that, situated in terms of like the the previously delineated areas of the encyclopedic spirit is it um part of the technological age in the the, the last of the three or um previous to that or um it, where does it fit in is it is it another stage supposedly Um, I think is this is a different periodization than than that one, the three stages of encyclopedism. So yeah, the three stages of encyclopedism were the the Renaissance, um, the Enlightenment, and then um, uh, the sort of modern modern or contemporary era, the the, the sort of ongoing uh, stage introduced by cybernetics um, that uh, that he was uh, witnessing at, at his time. Um, but the, so I think I think the thermodynamic age that he's pointing to here is a fits into a different periodization um but he did um at one point contrast the thermodynamic uh the age of thermodynamic machines with the age of electrical machines um, um i can't remember exactly where that was but um uh yeah so the thermodynamic age would be roughly the 19th century um and then starting around like the 1890s or so you have the introduction of um electricity into industrial manufacturing and uh um, the way that it um, uh, it requires um, uh, industry to be integrated into um, an electrical network 
as opposed to the way thermal factories were were sort of self-contained systems. Okay, yeah, thank you. That that's very clarifying, actually. So he's he's pointed out this um, connection between technocratic uh, philosophy and um, the thermal uh, thermodynamic age, uh, but he hasn't really um, sort of laid out or explained what the connection is. And I think that's what he's going to do in the next paragraph if we want to go on to that one. Uh, I can go again. Okay. Um, it is therefore natural that in machines, the advent of the use of information channels that are distinct from energy channels caused a very profound change in the philosophy of technics. This advent was conditioned by the development of the vehicles of information, and in particular of low current signals. This is what we call electric currents, considered not as energy carriers, but as vehicles for information. Electric current as a vehicle for information is equal only to Hertz waves or a light beam, which also consists of electromagnetic waves like Hertz waves. Because electric current and electromagnetic waves have in common both an extreme speed of transmission and the ability to be modulated with precision without noticeable inertia in frequency as well as in amplitude. Their ability to be modulated makes them faithful carriers of information, and their speed of transmission makes them rapid carriers. What then becomes important is no longer the power conveyed, but the accuracy and fidelity of the modulation transmitted by the information channel. Beyond the dimensions defined by thermodynamics, a new category of physical dimensions emerges that makes it possible to classify information channels and compare them. This elaboration of new concepts has a particular sense for philosophical thought because it provides the examples of new values which, until this day, made no sense in techniques, though they made sense in human thought and behavior. Thermodynamics had thus defined the notion of efficiency for a conversion system such as an engine. The efficiency is the ratio between the amount of energy at the inlet of the engine and the amount of energy collected at the outlet. Between the inlet and the outlet, there is a change in the form of energy. For example, in the case of the heat engine, thermal energy becomes mechanical energy. Since we know the mechanical equivalent of a calorie, we can define the efficiency of an engine as a transformer of thermal energy into mechanical energy. In every device that performs a conversion, we can more generally define an efficiency that is the ratio between two energies. There is thus the, the efficiency of the furnace, which is the ratio between the amount of chemical energy contained in the fuel system and the amount of heat actually released. The efficiency of the furnace boiler system defined by the ratio between the caloric energy produced by the furnace and the thermal energy effectively transmitted to the water in the boiler. There is an energy efficiency. There is an engine efficiency. that is the ratio between the energy contained in the system that is constituted by the hot steam sent to the inlet and by the cold sink in the condenser and the mechanical, mechanical energy effectively produced by the steam expansion in the cylinder, a theoretical efficiency governed by the Carnot principle. In a series of energy transformations, the efficiency calculated between the first energy input and the last energy output is the product of all partial efficiencies. This principle applies even when the energy collected in the output is of the same nature as that at the inlet. When a storage battery is being charged, there is an initial partial efficiency, which is the conversion of electrical energy into chemical energy. When discharging it, there is a second partial efficiency, which is that of the conversion of chemical energy into electrical energy. The output of the battery is the product of these two efficiencies. However, when an information channel is used to transmit information, or when information is recorded onto a medium for storage purposes, 
or when there is a transfer from one information medium to another medium, for example, from mechanical vibrations to an alternating current in which the frequencies and amplitudes follow the vibrations, a loss of information occurs. What is collected at the outlet is not identical to what was at the inlet. So I was wrong. It wasn't in this paragraph. Um, he's uh, going to take a more roundabout route to get there. Um, but yeah, so he's contrasting here the um, the idea of energy efficiency and um, uh, information degradation, I guess you could say, or uh, information fidelity. Okay, so we can continue then, I suppose. I think this paragraph was, was fairly um, clear. So I'll read the next one. For example, if one wants to transmit a current of acoustic frequencies through an information channel that is a telephonic circuit, one notes that some frequencies are correctly transmitted. For these, the modulation connect collected at the outlet is identical to that which was put in at the input of the circuit. But the bandwidth of a telephone circuit is narrow. If one enters a noise or a complex sound at the entrance to this channel, a considerable deformation ensues. The modulation collected at the outlet is not at all comparable to that which was entered at the input. It consists in an impoverishment of the former. For example, the fundamental frequencies of complex sounds between 200 Hz and 2000 Hz are transmitted correctly, but deprived of their upper harmonics. Or once again, the circuit introduces a harmonic distortion, which is to say that a sinusoidal sound that was entered at the input is no longer represented by a sinusoidal tension at the outlet, Despite their apparent difference, by the way, the two phenomena are the same. A circuit that introduces a harmonic distortion is an, in an, uh, is an information channel with a narrow bandwidth that would transmit, without appreciable distortion, a sound that has the same frequency as, at the input as that of the harmonic component which appears at the outlet, even though it wasn't at the input, which is something that can occur when the circuit has a resonance at this harmonic frequency. A perfect information channel would provide all the modulations, however rich or complex they may be at the outlet, as had been put in at the, at the input. One could attribute to this information channel an efficiency equal to one, as one would attribute to a perfect engine. Uh, I'm gonna continue with the next paragraph as well. These efficiency characteristics of information channels are not energy characteristics, and very often good information efficiency goes hand in hand with low energy efficiency. An electromagnetic loudspeaker has better energy efficiency than an electrodynamic loudspeaker, but very poor information output. This fact is fairly well explained if one considers that in a transformation system, the best energy efficiency is obtained when there is, tight, there is a tight coupling of two elements by a sharp resonance. A transformer whose coil capacitances are in tune with a certain frequency has a, an excellent primary secondary coupling for this frequency, but it has a poor coupling for the other frequencies. It therefore transmits this frequency selectively, which causes a considerable signal loss when it is being used for broadband transmission. The energy output of a transformer designed to transmit information is lower but constant for a wide frequency band. Energy efficiency and information output are thus two dimensions that are not linked to each other. The technician is often obliged to sacrifice one of the two outputs to obtain the other. Form is what is essential in information channels, and the conditions of its correct transmission are very different, different than those of high, efficient, high efficiency energy transmission. The resolution of problems related to information channels calls for an attitude that's different in spirit to that which is appropriate for problem solving in applied thermodynamics. A technician of thermodynamics tends towards gigantism in constructions and large-scale effects because thermodynamic efficiency increases with the size of engines and installations. It is certainly possible to construct a small-scale steam engine, but its efficiency is low. 
even if it is very well constructed, it cannot attain an excellent efficiency because heat loss and the importance of mechanical friction significantly come into play. The turbine is a system for the transformation of thermal energy into mechanical energy, which offers a better efficiency than that of a reciprocating engine. But if a turbine is to function properly, it requires a large installation. The efficiency of three small thermal power plants is lower than that of a single power plant with the same power as the three small ones together. This increase in efficiency with the size of the involved machines is a general and practical law of energetics that exceeds the framework of thermodynamics, strictly speaking. An industrial electric transformer generally has a higher efficiency than one with a nominal power of 50 watts. However, this tendency is much less pronounced within new forms of energy, such as electrical energy, than within the old ones, such as heat. Nothing would stand in the way of constructing a small-scale high-output electric transformer. If the efficiency of low-power devices is somewhat neglected, then this is because the loss of output is less important for them than for industrial devices. Heat, in particular, is more easily dissipated for the same reasons that a small steam engine has a lower efficiency than a large one. Actually, I think uh, I'll just read the last paragraph as well because it looks like it's uh, uh, continuing the reasoning of the, the previous two. On the contrary, the information technician is brought in to find the smallest possible dimensions compatible with the residual thermodynamic requirements of the devices he uses. Information, effectively, is all the more useful in a regulation process in that it intervenes without delay since the increase in size of information machines or transmission devices increases inertia and transit time. The stylus of the telegraph has become too heavy. A cable can transmit far more signals than the stylus can print. A single cable could carry traffic of 30 simultaneous calls. In an electronic tube, the time of transit for electrons between cathode and anode is responsible for a cutoff of high frequencies. The smallest electronic tube is the one that can reach the highest frequencies, but this same tube then, then has a very low power because its small size does not allow it to evacuate enough heat without reaching a temperature that would compromise its functioning. It is possible that one of the causes of the tendency towards size reduction which we have witnessed since 1946, lies in the discovery of this imperative of information techniques to build technical individuals and above all elements, um, and above all elements of a very small size because they are more perfect and have better information output. So he's contrasting um, um, information transmission from energy efficiency, uh, contrast, contrasting information transmission and energy efficiency um, with respect to their tendencies um, on the size of, uh, of technical objects. So um, thermal energy or sorry, the, the optimization of energy efficiency tends to um, uh, motivate increasingly large um, technical objects. So uh, giant power plants and, and turbines and so on, um, whereas the optimization of um, information transmission will tend to uh, lead to smaller and smaller technical objects, and, and this has only um, uh, only increased since the time that he's writing with um, the introduction of um, uh, transistors and um, microchips and uh, the constant um, progression of smaller and smaller chips. That's, it's a very interesting relationship between the, the, the size and the efficiency and the, the kind of two eras, the, um, uh, the one which, in which valued energy transfer 
more and the one which values information transfer or signal transfer more, I guess. And the, this, the, the various different psychosocial correlations which that involves. It's definitely a lot of different topics he's kind of putting into the the technology bubble, which is which is good idea, I think, to do, um, and perfectly plausible as well that these would be key relevant factors. So, yeah. Um, so again, he's he's continuing this sort of roundabout um, route to to we're going to get eventually to what the link is between um, uh, the ideology of technocracy and um, the the prevalence of these thermal machines. Um, I think, I guess it's going to be in the next section that we won't have time to get to today. Um, but um, I think, you know, I, I can't remember the, the details of it, but what it, it looks like, what he's pointing to here is um, in the thermodynamic era, you don't have the separate information channel which means that um, the the tendency will be towards bigger and bigger uh, machines, so giant steam engines and and uh, turbines and so on. Um, which means that the the cost or the decision making will be beyond the capacity of the individual uh, technician or engineer or or whoever. Um, so the people that have the the technical knowledge of the functioning of the machine won't have the power to implement. Um, their technical knowledge, uh, and so that this ideology that they should have that power that says you know the the engineers should have control over society um, will develop in that context. Whereas uh, in the later developments, when you have um, uh, the uh, the use of uh, information transmission in a separate channel from the energy channel, um, it's it because it motivates smaller machines uh, and smaller technical objects. Um, you won't have that same tendency towards uh, the technocratic ideology because you have um, the people with technical knowledge can become, um, you know, amateur radio uh, uh, hobbyists or or whatever other. Um, uh, you, you can have uh, technology at the scale of uh, an individual that has the knowledge. So it's kind of the evaluation of the regulative ideal in that domain of technical object is reflective of that same kind of psychosocial uh, circumstance for the the human subject in that is relevant to that milieu. Yeah, I think um, because the in the um, thermal thermodynamic uh, era that regulated function is um, uh, sort of externalized from the machine. Um, it means that the, the human operator is still, um, uh, uh, has the function of, of performing that regulation. Whereas in the um, electrical uh, era, or um, when, when you have the separate information channel, the, the machine has its own self-regulation. So the human operator, you don't need that human operator to perform the regulation. Uh, so it has a different integration. The machine has a, is integrated in a different way into society, or the the human operator is integrated in a different way into the technical ensemble. It's interesting. I feel um, for the first time probably that there's a certain kind of open-endedness to the, this question that is somehow unresolved, uh, which is much different than my attitude about everything else, which seemed to fit perfectly. 
with what was before it. But I'm going to have to kind of see how this expands into the, the technocratic um, attitude, et cetera. Um, as this goes on, I'll be interested to to see how this works out. You know, it's very exciting. Yeah, you leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger for in this section because we don't uh, we don't have the resolution of, of the what that relation between the ideology and the uh, technical reality is. Um, so we'll have to wait uh, for next time. Tune in next week to uh, to hear the resolution. <laughs> uh, so unless there are any other um, comments, maybe that would be a good place to stop since we're uh, at the end of the section and we have a, we're almost at two hours. All right. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for uh, participating uh, this week, and uh, hope to see you next week as well. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks.